Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together to fellowship, Father, and to worship you. Father, we pray now that everything done and said today will be to the upbuilding of your kingdom, Father. And we just pray that this word will go out and will not return void, but it will accomplish what it was sent to do. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. So uh, this Jewish guy had uh, his young kid who was getting ready to have his bar mitzvah. And he said, I really, you know, am torn because you don't have a lot of information of the old country. And I really feel like you should have more information of where we come from. So I'm going to send you to Jerusalem for a couple of weeks to where you can study the, the heritage and the culture and all of the stuff before we make this huge step. So the little boy goes on the trip and he comes back and is getting ready to force bar mitzvah. And he said, Dad, actually, I got some news for you. While I was in Jerusalem... I became a Christian. And dad was like, man, that is not, this is not good news for me. So the dad goes to the leader of the church, the rabbi, and says, Rabbi, I don't know what to do. I sent my kid to Jerusalem where they'll get a little bit more, you know, feeling of, of our culture and history, and he came back a Christian. And the rabbi said, well, funny you should say that because my son did exactly the same thing. And I have been wanting to talk to somebody about it. And our state director is in town next week and we'll go talk to him. So the state director shows up and they said, told him the whole story. And he said, well, funny you should say that because my son did exactly the same thing. And they're like, well, we don't know what to do. And the guy said, well, I know we'll pray about it. So they get on their knees and they start praying and they tell God the whole story. And the lightning bolt hits and the sky parts and God says, well, funny you should say that because I sent my kid there and he came back a Christian too. <laughs> I hear again, I'll take all the jokes y'all got. <laughs> I thought that was pretty ap appropriate for Palm Sunday. I've actually been holding on to that one for a little bit. I thought it was funnier than y'all did. It's okay. Um, Man, so Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is the beginning of a celebration for us. Um, it's actually kind of like the, it's not the beginning of a love story, but it's like really in the part of the love story where everybody starts to see that this is really a love story, right? And when Jesus came into town, and y'all know I'm going to talk about some of that stuff because it just blows my mind on how it was prophesied years and years and years and years in advance and it happened exactly the way they said it was going to happen because God's word is true regardless of what else takes place, right? But Palm Sunday is the crowning glory, the first time that Jesus ever allowed anybody to talk about him in the form of a king or a leader or a savior. Now, he had talked to his folks, right? He, he had preached to his disciples and he had taught them and lead, led them. But at no point in time ever did he allow himself to be exalted, right? He played it down over and over and over. I mean, he would heal people and tell them, don't tell anybody. He didn't want to do the water into wine. He, he, he just wanted it to keep it. But this time, this time when he came into Jerusalem for the first time ever, he was exalted as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And y'all know the, what Palm Sunday really is, right? Is they ran out and they laid branches and their robes and stuff onto the ground to where he would walk over them coming into his kingdom. Now, <clears throat> like I said, all of that stuff was prophesied about years and years and years before. 
all the way back to into Genesis, it started talking about the, the kings and where they would come from and who they would belong to, right? When they were prophesying, when um, Jacob was prophesying over his kids, right, he told Judah that you will be the, the lineage of kings, that you'll never give up power. It will always be yours, right? In Genesis 49, he tells them that you will be the, 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 your, the kings will come out of your lineage. <clears throat> and it says that Jesus is out of the tribe of Judah. So if you go to the beginning of the, let's, let's look. Here's the thing, right? So God was dealing with a lot of folks who were actively looking for the Messiah. And he was trying to give them as many clues as possible. Because, I mean, Jesus was sent for the Jews and he was trying his best, God was trying his best for the Jews to accept him as the Lord of Lord and the Savior, and they would not do it. And, and God knew that he had all of these things, these prophecies that all of these Jewish scholars had studied for years and years and years, and they knew that he was going to be out of the line of Judah and out of the house of David, right? All of these things. And so if you will, turn with me, and I'm not going to read it because I cannot read all of those words, but I just want you to see it. And I hope they can put it up on the screen and maybe flip through it for y'all that don't have it in your hand. But the gospel according to Luke, um, chapter 3, and verse 23. And then I'll, I'll start. And now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, and he was the son of Joseph. Right? Flip to the next one. And it starts talking about all of the sons, Right? Here's the son of this guy, who's the son of that guy, who's the son, and it goes all the way back through, and if you read through it, right, who's the son of Joseph, who's the son of Judah, right, all of the people in the lineage of God, that, 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 who's the son of David, who is the son of Boaz, who is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Jacob, Abraham, all of the people that was supposed to be in Jesus' lineage, right? They laid it out. It's kind of like a pedigree, right? If you ever had a, like a, like right now in the hunting club, right? We got this one dog. He's bad. His name is John Wick. He is unbelievable. Everybody wants a dog off of John Wick, right? He belongs to Josh Barnett. John Wick. They talk about John Wick like he could walk across the river if he needed to. John Wick. But, but what you want is that lineage behind that dog, right? You want that lineage to make sure that that's who they say they were. So Jesus, if he was filling out a job application, he would have walked in and said, well, my lineage goes back to, um, if you go all the way down to verse 37, right? And, and this is in descending order, right? So if you go to verse 37 and you start on the bottom, it says, Adam is the son of God, and Seth was the son of Adam, and Enosh was the son of Seth, and Kenneth, right? And then Methuselah, and then Enoch, and then Noah, right? It's all of the people in God's lineage from Adam to Noah to David to Judah, right? Through Abraham's lineage, he, he is filling out all of the boxes to check, right? This is who I am, and this is where I come from, all right? So now, for the Messiah to be real, he still has some more boxes to check, right? We know he's in the lineage of Judah, 
right? So if you'll turn to Zechariah uh, chapter 9. And, and, and look, there, there are lots of other uh, uh, boxes that he checked, right? That he was born of a virgin, that he was born in Bethlehem, right? That he fled to Egypt, right? All of those things have already taken pl- place. But now if you go to Zechariah, um, chapter 9, verse 9, and it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, and see your king comes to you, righteous and victoria, victorious, Lowly and riding on a donkey, right? So, if you were a Jewish scholar and you were standing on the side of the road on Palm Sunday, it should have been like, oh, 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 I know this one. I've seen this story before. I, I know what's getting ready to happen. Rejoice, right? What did they do? They rejoiced and threw stuff in the street. But they still refused to, I mean, if you had some story that your ancestors had told you over and over and over and over and over and you had studied it your entire life, and then one day you showed up and it looked exactly like that, you don't think you would have thought about it? You know, it's that, you know... And all I have is silly references because, you know, we, we, we always believe what the Bible said. We don't have any superstitions and stuff to come out of that. But, but like if the turkeys gobble best when the oak leaves are about the size of a squirrel's ear, right? When the, when the, when the dogwoods bloom, the turkeys are gobbling, right? That's the things that you remember. That, but when, so when I see the dogwoods start to bloom or the little tiny oak leaves starting to bud, I know the turkeys are getting ready to gobble. But if you were going to be a Jewish scholar and you were going to spend your life being a Jewish scholar and you knew what Zechariah had said not that long ago, I mean long ago, but not that long ago, and you saw this guy walk into town riding on a donkey, walk into town riding on a donkey, come into town riding on a donkey, and the people are standing on the road rejoicing, don't you feel like that that is your king? How do you not? And, and, and daddy says, right, it's real easy to look back and say why they were wrong and why we were right, right? Because we done seen the story unfold. We don't have to use the context clues of the scripture from years ago. And I'm sure there's still prophecies buried in the word of God that we haven't seen fulfilled yet, that we should be able to see coming and we haven't been able, we don't have that knowledge of God, right? But, but this one, this one's pretty easy, so just to make sure that it was right, right? Just to make sure that, I mean, how many of y'all have remembered Jesus riding anywhere on anything up until this point? I mean, we know his mama rode on a donkey one time, right? But how many of y'all have ever seen Jesus ride anywhere? I, I, I can't remember a single scripture. I mean, he rode on a boat a couple times. He walked across the water one time to catch the boat, but he'd never ridden a donkey. So if you flip to Matthew, um, chapter 21 and verse 1, so Matthew 21, 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you. 
And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Now, now Matthew then like quoted what Zechariah had already said, right? Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by, through the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes. Gentle riding on a donkey, on a colt, and the foal of a donkey. Right? So he rode on a donkey nobody ever rode on before. Why? Because he wanted it to be certain that you couldn't say, well, you know, that one place in Scripture, it said the Savior was going to do. No, no, he did all of those things. He filled all of those boxes. He went through the list, made sure that every prophecy was met. That there's every piece of the lineage. Who's daddy? Yeah, he was the son of that guy, who was the son of that guy, who was the son of that guy. He was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem, right? All of the stuff that was required for him to be the savior of the world, all of those boxes had to be checked. And it was... 100% for people, not for God. God didn't need to do all of this. He didn't need to check all these boxes to prove that he's God. He created everything that is. But he wanted it to be, well, I'm a scientist or I'm a theologian and I want to go back and prove exactly what, who this guy is, who he says he is. So God put all of these things in Scripture. He buried them deep into it. I mean, Daniel prophesied down to the week of when he was going to be killed, right? All of these guys, all of these great men of God who had served God for years and years and years have prophesied all of this stuff about the Messiah. Why? Because God told them to, right? I mean, a prophet's not very good if the prophet's working on his own accord. The prophet's saying what God wants him to say. So he put all of these clues, he buried all of this stuff so you could go back through it and scientifically break it down and say, well, he did this, and he did that, and he did this, and he did that. And you go, well, why did he do it? Well, it's pretty easy, because he loves you. Because he wants there to be no doubt that he is the Savior of the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son to die for us. And it says in Philippians, death even on a cross even on a horrible, possible, horriblest possible way to die, even death on a cross, that he loved us so much that he wanted to make sure that every box was checked. If he did not come into town this week as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, could he have been crucified? I don't think so. I, I think it has to happen. If he didn't ride on the donkey, could he have been crucified? I mean, I guess they could have crucified him. But it would have broke all of the contract parts that God had laid out. See, God had put this into place to where when it happens, then it'll be airtight. Y'all do much of contract negotiation. Sometimes you get into stuff and you, you're arguing over little things and you're really not arguing over little things, you're arguing over big things, but you can't win the big things, so you argue over the little things. So you make sure all of the details are exactly right of when you're going to start and when you're going to finish and how you're going to get paid and what has to happen for the job to be acceptable and not acceptable. 
So God built an airtight contract. So when the enemy comes against the contract and says, well, you didn't, nope, did that too. He was exactly who he said he was. He was on time. And he did exactly what he was supposed to do. So now that I can take the gift of salvation that he gave me, and I am now involved in that airtight contract, that there is nothing that can come against my salvation and go, well, you know, Jesus lied that one time. No, no, he was without sin. He was without blemish, without stain. He was a perfect sacrifice. Well, you know, that one time he was supposed to ride on a donkey. Nope, he did. He rode on a donkey. They were supposed to throw stuff down in the ground where the king could walk on them. Yep, they did that too. Every box was checked to where there was no argument against Jesus in his perfect and holy authority to become the savior of the world. It's so airtight that there are atheists now who said, yes, this guy did live, but I don't know that he was the son of God, but yes, he did live. I mean, the historical value, if you go back and look at the artifacts and the writings, there are 20 or 30 non-Christian scholars who wrote about Jesus' life in their historical recount of what took place. It is so overwhelming with the evidence it is more proof that that guy lived and the facts of his life are so true versus anybody else ever on the planet. There have been more books written about him. There have been more talks about him. This is still the number one selling book in the history of the world. They took it off the New York Times list because they were tired of it being on top. It is still the number one selling book. And from the first page to the last page was nothing but a setup to put Jesus into the place of where he was supposed to be, walking in Jerusalem on that day to where all of my salvation and my healing and my redemption and all of the things he did for me is in an airtight contract. It cannot be broken. And I know, I mean, if you, were, if you were sitting down to try to write a story, right, it, it, it would be, it, it's tough to write a good story, right? I mean, it's probably hard to be a writer, to write a good, intriguing story with lots of characters and different kinds of stuff. Then do it over thousands of years. Then take these people who have never communicated with anybody else and line their words up in exact harmony for thousands of years with no contradictions, no holes. One of my favorite movies all time is Tombstone, and it has holes. Doc Holliday 100% shoots that double barrel three times at OK Corral. He shoots up in the air twice. He shoots it three times. It's my favorite movie. And it, it, it hurts my feelings that there's such an error in the middle of it. And it's only 90 minutes long. There's not an error from the front to the back the gospel is the harmony of the word of God. It's a love story. It was written from when God said, let there be light, to when it says amen in the back. Every part of it is tied together to where it is irrefutable evidence that proves that God is holy, 
that God sent his son to die for our sins, and that there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. If there was some other way, if there was, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and nobody can go through the Father except through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Me. The only way you can go to Father is through me. All the other stuff in the religions of the world are, are, are a shadow at best. From the beginning of the book to the end of the book, from the creation of the world to the end of the world, God's word is true. And it is so true that when he was coming into town, and I know y'all know I was going to talk about this, they, they come to him and say, Master, Master, stop your people from talking. Stop them from yelling. We're going to make the people mad. We're going to make the Romans mad. And he said, if I do, the sticks and the logs and the trees and the rocks will shout it out. It was so true that it didn't make any difference. If nobody would have showed up, the rocks would have shouted Hosanna and praise to the king. Because God's word is true regardless of if, you know, that's their opinion or your opinion or somebody else's opinion. When you go to the historical account of what took place, God's word is true. I think it's amazing. They have the, you know, the History Channel or the whatever, the Nat Geo, and they go, oh, we found remnants of where Joshua really burnt the city down. I already knew. The Bible said Joshua burnt the city down. I'm good. We found a place down to where we think the ark might have actually been real. No kidding. I already knew that. I learned that in the little three and four-year-old class back there. I'm just smart enough to listen from, from when I was taught. Well, we found evidence that this might be true, that there were really giants. I know that there were giants. The Bible talks about them over and over. It's in the Word. The problem is, is as Christians, we will not understand or believe or hold on to it that this is not negotiable, that it's absolutely true. And if Jesus really is the Son of God, and if he did send him to save the world, and if he was beaten and tortured and put on the cross for mine, for my ability, I mean for my sake, then all of the promises he bought with him are true. It's like doing those proofs, right? If this is true and that's true, then that makes the part in the middle true. Well, if he really came here and he really died on the cross and he really was beaten and tortured, then I'm really healed, I'm really set free, I'm really redeemed, I've really been bought, brought, bought back. I'm really the sons and daughters of God, that we are ambassadors of God, that we have been set free. All of that part is true. So if he really rode on a donkey... If they really said, Hosanna, praise to the king, if he really did say, I'm the way, the truth, and the light, and no one can go to the Father except through me, then why ain't the rest of it true? Well, I know God might heal me one day when we in heaven. No. There ain't no healing in heaven. Why do you need healing in your earthly body that you're not taking with you to heaven? You don't need healing in heaven. Healing is here. It belongs to us now. The, therefore, there is now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus in Roman 8. That's not no condemnation in heaven. That's no condemnation now. That we've been, if you know the truth and the truth will set you free, that's not free when we get to heaven. That's free now. 
We act like we're working towards some kind of retirement plan that's down the road that if I can just hold on long enough, I'll get my pension. Mine is now. He went through all of that trouble to make everything line up perfectly so that I could have it now. And he didn't have to do it, but he did. And if he did, well, why won't I take it? Why don't we accept it? Um, turn with me to First Peter. And we're going to start a little bit earlier than we would. 1 Peter 2. Uh, and 23. And when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he thrusted himself to him who, just, who judges just, justly. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may die to sin and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, we have been healed. So you're telling me that you're willing to take that he took my sins to the cross to where I can be saved as the gospel, because it is the gospel, but you refuse to understand the second part of that scripture that says that he bore my sickness in his body? By his wounds you have been healed. Because he bore my sins, and nobody argues with that, that as soon as he took my sins to the cross, he took my sickness to the cross as well. He redeemed me from the curse, but says, Cursed is any man who was hung on a tree. He set us free and then bought us back. And we walk around like we are still beat, still broke, still hung up. This day is the celebration of of the greatest love story ever told. This day is the beginning of the end. Without today, the next day and the next day and the next day, Jesus can't accomplish what he was supposed to accomplish. He has to come into town riding on the donkey. He has to be celebrated. He has to do all of the things to build that airtight contract. And over the next couple of days in, in Holy Week, right, what's he do? He goes to pray in the garden, and he eats some supper, and he gets betrayed and beaten and tortured and hung on a cross. But today is the celebration of the Savior right before he became the Savior. I mean, he was there. He was going to be the Savior. But before he actually completed the deal, they started celebrating what was fixing to take place. And they didn't know that's what they were doing, but God did. God had set it up to where when they came into town that he was going to be celebrated and worshipped, right? Hosanna, praise to the king. Before he got there to make the sacrifice. You think there was some reassurance in that to Jesus? He was coming in and they were saying Hosanna and praise to the king and he knew what was fixing to happen. 
It made me feel better. If I was planning on dying and going to hell for y'all and being beaten and tortured and spit on and made fun of, it would sure make me feel better if y'all wanted to say Hosanna. Woo, we, great job. But what happened today was the beginning, the celebration of one of the most eventful weeks in history. If you read the Gospels, and I, I ask you to do that this week, pick a Gospel and read it. And there's a lot about his birth, and there's a gap, and there's some about his ministry, but a lot of the Gospels start today, and from today through Sunday, it is Scripture after scripture after scripture, promise after promise after promise, example after example after example of what God has done for you as a Christian. And Jesus was trying to explain it to them because he knew he had to pack this week full of knowledge, full of information. Why? Because he knew he was getting ready to die. He knew he was getting ready to pay the price, but he wanted them to have all of this information and, and, and they were writing it down. They were going through the stuff and, and keeping notes of it. As we go into Holy Week, if no other week, this week, really spend time in Holy Week or what Jesus goes through in these next four or five days. Because he did it for you. And he did it for me. The least we can do is read about it a little bit. As we celebrate Holy Week... It cannot happen without him riding into town on a donkey and being celebrated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for everything that you've done for us, Father. We thank you for this holy week, Father, that where we can learn and understand what you did for us and, and what Jesus went through for us. And we just give you the praise and honor and glory for it. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.